I heard a story on uh, this week that I thought maybe would uh, make you have a little chuckle about something that probably happens at your house on Sunday mornings. There was a mom who went to their son's uh, went to her son's door and she knocked on the door. She said, "Son, it's time to wake up and go to church." And the son said, "I'm not going today." And the mom said, "Well, why not?" And the guy and the, the, the son said, "Well, I'll tell you why. One, because they don't like me very much, and two, because I don't really like them either. Maybe you've heard something like that before. And that was, I heard that over there. Um, and so the mom said, "Well, listen, I can give you two reasons why you need to get up and go." She said, "One, you're 54 years old, and two, you're the pastor." And so you really need to go to church. Like I said, it's not exactly the situation you face, but maybe a little bit similar. Uh, And so uh, this morning, we're going to look at one of the last letters that Paul ever wrote, and it was to a man named Titus, who was a pastor in a very hard place. He might have had a Sunday morning uh, like that, where he didn't want to go to church. Last Sunday night, we looked at Paul's counsel to Timothy in the letter of 1 Timothy. And next Sunday morning, we will look at Paul's last letter that he ever wrote, and that is the letter of 2 Timothy. And so uh, we want to understand some things about the church today. And you might be thinking, well, it's the Sunday before Thanksgiving. Uh, why aren't we talking about Thanksgiving? Well, that's what tonight's for. So, uh, so y'all come and hear the Thanksgiving message tonight. It's going to be a good one, I promise. Um, and so, but this morning we want to take a look at our, at, at Titus because there's some very important things that we need to understand about the church. And so his letter to Titus uh, is very similar to his letter in, uh, to Timothy, even though the place was totally different. Ephesus was a place that Paul spent almost two years, and, uh, and we know Ephesus was a crucial uh, place for Timothy to go, and that John the Apostle would later go. It would be from there that he was exiled to the city of Patmos, or the, the island of Patmos, to write the, uh, the letters that he wrote, and then the uh, book of Revelation. And, but this place, Crete, is very different. It's, it's much different. It's very hard. And, and you would think, well, why? I mean, does Paul not really like Titus? Is that why he sent him to, uh, to a place like Crete, which you'll hear a little bit more about in a second, about why it was such a bad place? But maybe Paul just, maybe he just didn't like Titus very much. No, Titus had actually proven himself to be a trusted co-worker of Paul's because it was Titus who delivered all of the letters to Corinth. And Paul uh, saw Titus minister to the church in Corinth as he delivered those letters, and he saw that Titus was a trusted co-laborer in the gospel, that he knew how to handle tough situations. He knew how, knew how to maintain his temper. He knew how to, how to preach the gospel leading to repentance. He knew, knew how to confront with love. And so it's for that reason that Paul leaves Titus in this place called Crete, because he has proven to be a trustworthy and steadfast worker. And look at chapter 1, verse 5. This is why Paul left him there. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. The church family there in Crete needed to be shepherded and instructed, and Titus was the right man for the job. And for us, as we study, Paul wants to inform our understanding about what the church is and what the church is meant to be. And all of this fits within the context of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's been the four 
four key words that you've heard uh, Sunday after Sunday throughout this entire year. When somebody asks you what the Bible is about, I hope you'll respond to them. Well, it's a story about creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, how this world was created by God to serve a purpose, how we were created by God to serve a purpose, and yet sin has, has caused us to fall away from that purpose, and it's, it's stained the very core of who we are as human beings. And that's, that's something, uh, something that we deal with on a daily basis. We all struggle with it. And so if we are going to be reconnected or reconciled to God the Father, then it's going to have to be through a Redeemer, and that Redeemer's name is Jesus Christ. And because Jesus Christ came and lived and died and rose again, and ascended on high, the church has been established in his spirit so that we can go and be agents of restoration in this culture. That's, that's the age we're living in. That's the era that we are living in. We are the church, and we have one mission, and that is to be agents of restoration in this culture. And so how important is the church? Well, how important is God's task of restoration? The church is that important. And so what you're going to see this morning is that the, the church is not primarily made up of programs. The church is not primarily made up of committed, committees or even ministries for that, for that matter. But the church is individuals and families committed to walk with Christ together. And so let's jump into this very short letter of Titus. So I told you about the island of Crete. It was a large island in the Mediterranean Sea. And because it was where it was and the shape that it that it, or that it is, uh, it actually is a, uh, a kind of a hub for many shipping ports. The entire island has shipping ports all over it. And one of the reasons that, that Paul was so concerned that churches needed to be planted there in Crete was because of the opportunity that he saw for culture to be created. You see, culture is a very tricky thing. Uh, as, as Southern Baptists, we've railed against culture uh, for years and years and years. And the problem with railing against culture is that we live in culture. And so the only way to rail against culture is to stand apart from culture. And we're not very good at moderation. So we end up, uh, you know, not being quite Amish, but going, you know, going pretty far out of culture. And when you go too far out of culture, you're not able to reach in to culture and help people. Right? You become so, it's, it becomes a them and us kind of thing. And so we need to recognize that we make culture but culture also makes us. Let me say that again, because I think it's a really crucial concept of why Paul was so concerned that we reached the cities. Cities like Corinth and Ephesus and Thessalonica and Galatia. Why is it so important? Why is Paul trying so hard to reach the cities? Because cities are the place where culture is made. We make culture, and culture makes us. That means that, that the kind of people that we choose to be creates a world around us. And that world shapes our children. That's what that means. We create culture, and culture creates us. And that's why Paul saw it as such a critical mission to send Titus to Crete, because Crete was a culture well-known for its wickedness. To act like a Cretan or a Cretan was to be a liar, to play the liar. In fact, look at chapter 1, verse 12. One of their own prophets or poets, it says one of the Cretans, a, a, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Always, always, always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And so Paul tells Titus that, they're, that, that these are the kind of people that have infiltrated the church there at Crete. 
And this is the context to which Paul sent this steadfast co-worker, Titus. And a lot of commentators think that the letter of Titus was not so much for Titus because Titus had seen very clearly how Paul had worked in hard situations. He'd, he'd seen Corinth. I mean, Titus is mentioned throughout Paul's writings and letters. We know that Titus uh, was, was alongside him. So Titus didn't really need instruction per se, but what Titus needed was kind of a backup authority to say when he goes to Crete, here's a letter from the Apostle Paul himself that tells me that I have the authority to do what I'm doing here in this place. And so Paul sends Titus with this letter, hoping that the people would understand that this was written by Paul and that they needed to obey what he was saying. And with apostolic authority, Titus was to, first of all, appoint leaders. Secondly, to instruct the church. And there were two things he wanted to instruct the church about. First of all, relationships inside the church. And secondly, relationships outside of the church. And so let's begin just right there, this idea of appointing leaders in the church. Did you know, a little fun trivia uh, for a Sunday morning, did you know that the continent of, Africa, of Australia is moving? The continent of, of I'm going to call it Africa again, that's, that's not good, it's on my mind this morning. The continent of Australia is moving. It moves around 70 millimeters per year. And you know how they found this out? We invented GPS, right? And so when we invented GPS and we began looking and trying to establish certain uh, reference points there in Australia, we noticed after a, a period of, of, of a few years that it had moved. In fact, since the last time, I don't know if any of you are going to Australia anytime soon. If you are, I'd love to go with you. But uh, if, uh, since the last time that the Australian GPS was updated in 1994... Australia has moved almost five feet to the northwest. And so in the future of commerce, of, uh, of driverless cars and delivery drones, uh, Australia is worried because the ground beneath their feet is literally shifting. You say, well, why are you telling us that, Ryan? It's because the church in America is being faced with very much the same reality. The ground beneath our feet, the thing that we have become so familiar with and comfortable with, is changing. We're talking about the culture, and we're talking about uh, the degree to which Christianity is embraced in the culture. From the middle of last century, uh, or the early to the middle of last century, it was the golden years of Christianity. And when the 60s hit, uh, Christianity uh, kind of lost some clout in terms of popular culture. We could refer to many things that helped us understand that that was happening, but it, it did happen and is continuing to happen uh, to this day. It, it, it was, it's unheard of. It was unheard of in the, in the 40s and 50s to think that there were people in our nation who had never heard the name of Jesus. But today, that is absolutely the case. You don't have to go uh, to a, a far Himalayan uh, village to find people who've never heard the name of Jesus. You can just simply go to Seattle, Washington. And there are people there who have never heard the name of Jesus. They don't know what a Christian looks like. They don't know what a Christian is. And so it's just this incredible, incredible reality where we as a church are being faced with this, uh, this, this mentality of, what are we going to be? Are we going to hold steadfast to the unchanging principles of God's Word about what the church is supposed to look like as, as the culture around us, sh around us shifts? Or are we going to move ourselves? 
So think about it. If, you're, if the ground beneath your feet is the culture, then what happens when the culture changes? You're going to change with it. But if the ground beneath your feet is the Word of God, and culture is just the air that you breathe, then no matter what the culture looks like, then your feet are going to be solidly planted on what God's Word says about what family is supposed to look like, about what individuals are supposed to look like, about what churches are supposed to look like, about what marriage is. Right? We can rail against the culture all we want, but the culture's changing. We're not called to change with the culture. We're called to stand on the Word of God and love the people around us that are creating this culture. Do you see the difference there? And so what Paul is saying is relevant for us today. And in fact, I think what Paul is saying is beyond relevant for us today. I think what Paul is saying is something that we need to really wrestle with because according to Paul and what we've seen with 1 Timothy and, and, uh, and, uh, and Titus today and Cor uh, Corinthians and Galatians and all these other things where Paul describes what the church is really supposed to be, there are some ways that we have so overcomplicated what the church is supposed to be. And I think in Titus, this condensed, power-packed uh, little pastoral letter that Paul writes to his co-worker Titus, I think Paul is saying, if the church is going to be anything, please, please, for the love of all that's good and kind, let it be this. Let it be this. And so for us, we need to wrestle with this, not just of, of how does this apply to me personally, but how does this apply to us corporately? I think those are questions that we desperately need to ask, and we probably should have been asking them 20 years ago. And so what does the book of Titus tell us about the biblical church? First of all, Paul tells Titus that he needs to appoint godly leaders. Godly leaders. He begins by telling him, look at this, look at this greeting right here. Let's actually read the, uh, the first few verses. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, and the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how many sentences is verse 1, 2, 3, and 4? according to the punctuation that's in there. That's just one sentence, right? Okay, now, some of you are going to love me for this. Parents, I'd love for you to do this, okay? If you have a child that's in the age of diagramming sentences, please, please, please work with them this week to diagram this sentence and bring it to me, and I will I'll do something special. I mean, it, 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 would be, it would be amazing because there is no other letter in the New Testament that Paul begins like this. That's why a lot of commentators think that it wasn't for Titus. He wants people, as they're beginning to read this letter, he wants people to feel the weight, kind of the, the, the power that Paul is packing in this, in this gospel punch known as Titus. He wants people to feel the weight of this God who never lies and the weight of this gospel that has been manifested for the godliness of God's elect. And so Paul says, this is an awesome message and a transformational message that we have embraced, Titus. And the leaders in the church in Crete need to embrace it as well. They should be witnesses to this new life. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. He says, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. 
He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You see, much like the list in 1 Timothy 3, Paul doesn't emphasize charisma. He emphasizes character. And while the word overseer here is commonly used for pastors, last Sunday night we looked at the fact that uh, the biblical church should have a plurality of male leaders who teach and rule. That's what 1 Timothy chapter 3 reminds us of, and that's what Titus chapter 1 reminds us of. Now see, here's where we, we really ask, how much do we want to obey this, right? Because our, the people who teach and rule in our church are not called uh, elders, they're not called pastors, they're called what? Deacons, right? They're called deacons. Well, deacon, as we saw last week in 1 Timothy chapter 3, deacon is actually translated servant. And Paul actually shows us that the, the office of deacon, when truly just being a position of servant, uh, servanthood in the church, is not limited to men only. It's, it's, it's men and women. Paul calls uh, Phoebe in, in the book of Romans a, a diaconess, a, a deaconess, or a, a servant, a female servant of the church. There were multiple women who served the church. They were entrusted with authority uh, in, in, in so many ways in the church there in, uh, in the New Testament. But this office of elder, Paul makes very specific that it is for men. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a male leadership position. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying that, that you men who teach in the church, you men who, who govern the church and your decisions and in the wisdom that you have gained in your life, you need to be this type of man. Now notice Paul doesn't give Titus the office of deacon, does he? He only gives him the office of overseer, which is the, it's the Greek word episkopos, where we get episcopalian from. In other places, we get, we, he uses the word uh, presbyteros, which is where the word presbyterian comes from. All of those, all of those uh, denominational words about how the church is governed are found in the Greek words of the New Testament. You just don't see them because they're in English. And so this word overseer is commonly thought about as pastor, but as Baptists, we call them deacons. And so overseers should be people of character, not necessarily people of wisdom, not necessarily people of worldly, uh, of, I mean, not necessarily people of worldly wisdom, but people of character alone. And this was going to be a big step for the churches in Crete. Many of the men who were in Crete were retired mercenary soldiers, and the cities were plagued with violence and corruption. And so what is he saying? He's saying, Titus, don't settle. Don't settle. Don't lower the standards of leadership in the church for anyone. It doesn't matter what the culture looks like. You hear him say that? It doesn't matter what the culture around you looks like. Do not lower the standards of leadership in the church. It, 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 it behooves me to say this because, especially just in light of the reality of our story that we talk about at First Baptist Church, you need to recognize I am a temporary steward of this pulpit at best, right? I'm, I, I will not be here forever. I, w I, I won't. It's just, you, you won't be here forever. You won't be, you won't be sitting in the place you're sitting in 75 years from now, more than likely. 
We are temporary stewards of this place and these people. And we need to live like that, folks. We really do. We need to recognize that now is the time for obedience. Now is the time, Paul says to Titus, for godly men to step up and to do what it takes to lead the church in the direction that it needs to go. Now's the time. Don't, Titus, don't, don't lower your standards. The world around you may look a certain way, but don't bring that into the church. You need to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the leaders of the church need to model that for everybody else. And so he talks to them about this kind of leadership. But then he begins chapter 2 and he tells them to teach, he tells Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Chapter 2, verse 1. Teach what accords to sound doctrine. Paul started with leadership. Now he's moving on to life in the church. What should life in the church look like? How is sound doctrine embraced And how is it passed on in such a way that it transforms the next generation? You see, over the years, we've we've invented many things to try and and help us reach different groups of people. But there have always been unintended consequences. My my six years here as a youth pastor, uh, we we humorously coined a term called curbology. Curbology. It's where parents drop their kids off at the curb and expect the kids to teach them about Jesus. And that's the only Jesus they get all week long. We, we've, become a, we've become a culture where it's in vogue to outsource your kids' discipleship to the church. And so what do we do? We said, well, hey, we want those kids to know about Jesus. And so we, were, we rightly created opportunities like Awana and RAs and GAs and mission friends and youth ministry and all, youth, kids Sunday school, and all these different kinds of things. But I've got a good article that I hope you read on the back of your bulletin today. And it talks about why the only people, why, why you don't need just friends who are your age. And it's all rooted in Titus chapter 2. You see, one of the unintended consequences of things like youth ministry and, and, and all, all these other kids and age-graded events is that there's a lot of kids who don't know senior adults in here. And there's a lot of senior adults who don't know kids in here. And that is a tragedy. It truly is a tragedy. It was a tragedy in Crete, and it's a tragedy at First Baptist Church, Abbeville, Alabama. Because let me tell you, what we need is more, not less, of these times where we can get to know one another. You see, it's it's actually very uncommon in our day and age for a young man in his 20s to have an older male friend, a mentor, you might call it. Maybe just somebody they hang out with, they talk about life, they talk about this Young man getting married one day, they talk about having kids, or maybe it's just we spend time talking about the Lord, talking about things. But that's exactly the kind of thing that we need, and that's exactly the kind of thing that Paul was encouraging in Titus chapter 2 for this to take place in Crete. And so, how should, how should sound doctrine be passed on? Look at what Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 2. He says, Older men recognize that you are leading the way in character here. I want to address you first. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, I want you to do a little activity here for me, okay, kids? So if, you're, if you've got a little uh, blank sheet of paper, you can tally things. Okay, let's tally how many things older men are given, okay? First of all, we've got sober-minded, one. Dignified, two. Self-controlled, three. 
sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. You can just count that as four, okay? So to the older men, everybody say four. Four. He gave four things, right? Okay, so older women, okay, let's count again. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. It, just let me pause. Do you, know what he, do you know what he means by that, ladies? He's saying it's okay to lose your filter as you get older as long as you're loving Jesus and helping other people love Jesus as you lose your filter. That's what that means right there. That's like the new modern Ryan translation. But that, that's exactly what that means. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Okay, ladies, don't read into that too much, okay? Um, so how, how many are we at there? How many are we at? Older women, reverent behavior, slanderers, or sla- slanders, slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so to train, this is another thing they're to do, train the young women to do those things. So how many was that for the, for the older women? Five. Okay, so we got four for the older men, five for the older women. All right, next. These younger women, the older women are to train them to, let's go at it, love their husbands and children, that's one, to be self-controlled, two, pure, three, working at home, four, kind, five, submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. So that was how many for, for younger women? Six, okay, so they're, they're at the top of the list so far. And just so you know, working at home does not mean that they can't work outside the home. Okay, look at the lady of Proverbs 31. It just means that they don't neglect their home. And the same would be said for men. They don't need to neglect their home either. That's, that's a lot of people try to make that say something it doesn't say. So we got, we got six for the younger woman. We got five for the older woman. We got four for the older men. And now, now look, at, look at verse six. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. One. Man, times have not changed, right? Titus, Paul's like, Titus, listen, I could give you a whole book about what to teach these younger men about. But listen, if you could just rein them in and help them understand that they need to be self-controlled. He mentioned self-control on these others, right? But if they can just be self-controlled, that really the rest will take care of itself. It's almost like what he says. If they can be in contact with these older men, if, if you could have these older women training these younger women, and you can just teach these young men to be self-controlled, then I promise you, everything will work. It's like Paul's, Paul knows what he's talking about, right? Paul's got wisdom here for us. But do you see the kind of interaction that he wants to take place here? Paul never intended for the sum and substance of your interaction with other people in this church to be saying hi to them in the hallway, Amen? Y'all don't believe that. I'll, I'll call you out on that right now. Y'all don't believe that. Because when I said say amen, you're like, I can see everything from up here, y'all. It's, it's amazing. Y'all should come stand here sometime. You don't, but what are we, what, what we going to trade this for? I mean, really. Do we, do we want to be a church where people come in and it's like, Okay, Billy, we'll see you tonight. You go to your section. And okay, little Susie, okay, you go to your set. We'll see you later, baby. Hope you have fun learning about Jesus. And then the men go over here and the women go over here. And like, is, is that the way that we should be? Or should we be people who look at each other and invest in one another, who pray for one another, who actually get outside of our tables at Fellowship Supper and... Oh, now you're just stepping on toes, Ryan. Whew, okay, 
It's nice knowing y'all. We'll see y'all some other time. Now, I mean, have you ever tried to sit with somebody else at Fellowship Supper? Have you ever tried to stop at, in the hallway and say, I'd love to get together with you sometime. Or how can I pray for you? I mean, honestly, what kind of church do you want to be? And guess, I'm really asking you that question. Because, I, you know, I went to this First Baptist Church little small town conference a couple weeks ago. You know what they said that First Baptist Church, I, I'd heard it before because I heard Mr. David Peterson say it, man of wisdom. He said, he said, church folk at First Baptist Churches, they said it and broadly, but Mr. David has said it to me multiple times. He said, they, they vote with their feet and their pocketbooks. Listen. First Baptist Abbeville, if you're a guest with us, welcome. This is our family meeting. Y'all voted a long time ago on some of the things with your feet. You have. You voted a long time ago on some things with your wallets, too. Good and bad. With your feet, good and bad. But these are, these are truths that we've got to wrestle with. I mean, honestly, are you feeling the twinge of, ow, this is kind of painful this morning? Then you're getting it the way that Paul was delivering it. This is a reality for us. We've got to be connected with one another. We've got to be invested in one another because that is how the faith is transmitted from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. And that's going to happen outside of this campus. That's going to happen on this campus. That's going to happen as you invest. Guess what? You know why, you know why God calls you to tithe? Because you care about things that your money's invested in. Right? If, if you became part owner in an NFL football team tomorrow, how, how much would you be concerned with whether or not you're winning? Like, You'd, you'd want it to happen. If you, if you became invested in a business all of a sudden, how much would you be concerned about whether or not that business was profitable? If you invest your money somewhere, you'll care about it more. That's one of the reasons that God calls us to tithe. And so we've got to be the kind of people who recognize that this is a place worth our investment. This is a place worth our time. These are a people worthy of my affection and my attention and so how would our church schedule or our priorities as a church or our programs change if we said we believe this and want to make sure that we're doing this right? And you might say, but we wouldn't look like everybody else. Then so-and-so down the road would have this and we wouldn't. Is that really what matters? No, for Paul, faithfulness begins with the right foundation. What matters most is that you're passing the gospel from older to younger. Look at how he how he sums up the gospel in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to, re to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live, in self to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify him for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Why does that big, long, run-on sentence occur right there? Because Paul is telling them this is the foundation of your unity. 
This is why you get together. This is what you talk about when you get together. This is what your lives are to be centered around. And when it, when it brews inside of the church, when it boils inside the church, not in a bad way, but in a good way, as we spend time together, as we invest in one another, then it cannot help but to overflow outside of the church. And that's what chapter 3 is all about. That Christians, when they are right with God and they're walking with God, then they will be good citizens they will be peaceable and generous and obedient to authorities and known for pursuing the good of all people, not just themselves. And Paul talks about in chapter 3 about how we are to live outside of the church, showing them Jesus. Like the old poem says, you are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by deeds that you do and by words that you say. People read what you write, whether faithless or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you. That's what people are seeing in your life, whether faithless or true. And so what are they seeing? You see, this is, a very diff- this is very different from how the Cretans grew up. How are Christians supposed to live as peaceable citizens, as generous people, as not self-centered people? By fixing their eyes on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can read verses 3 through 7 of chapter 3 to get another one of those condensed gospel Uh, presentations that Paul gives, talking about how awesome this story of God is, because this story is so powerful that it creates a new kind of people. Paul is convinced that spirit-empowered faithfulness to the teachings of Jesus will declare God's grace all over the island of Crete and all over the world. And so what have we seen today? Well, first of all, we've seen that being transformed by the gospel is the key to living a godly life life into having a biblical church. Did you know that there are two ways to get roses on a rose bush? One is you can go buy a dozen roses and you can cut them all off uh, after, at the stem, maybe a little, leave a little stem on there, and then you can twisty tie them onto the branches of the rose bush. And then when you look at the rose bush, you'll have nice, beautiful roses. But what's going to happen to that rose, those roses in a week? Some of you are looking at me like crazy. What? They're going to die, right? They're going to die. And then you're going to have to go buy another dozen, and then you're going to have to go and twisty tie those on there, right? Or you could grow rose bush, uh, roses God's way, right? And you could plant the plant, and you could water it, and you could put fertilizer on it, and as it grows, you could continue to water and fertilize it, and then when that happens, life comes up from the bottom and makes those beautiful flowers on the outside, right? See, some people view church as the former, they view the, the, the Christian life as the former. They read all of these things about what to do and, and how to be in Titus and in Timothy and, and other New Testament letters. And they say, well, I've got to be that way. And so I'm going to go to church and I'm going to go and I'm going to, I'm going to get you know, information about how I should be. And I'm going to go and I'm going to twisty tie those on to my rose bush. But the problem is, is that you can't come to church enough to live the Christian life that way because it was never meant to be lived that way. The Christian life was meant to be lived the second way where you have the Spirit of God inside of you, calling you, working in you, guiding you to what faithfulness and obedience looks like. And then you flesh that out. You follow His movement and you flesh that out in love. And the water and the fertilizer of the Christian faith is the gospel of Jesus Christ. As you, t- t- Paul's letter to Titus makes it very clear that as you meditate upon the gospel, the Spirit of God uses that truth to nourish and grow every area of your life and every area of the church. 
But he also shows us where Christianity is truly seen and felt. I don't know about you guys, but I have really precious memories of when I was a kid. And maybe you've had to do this recently, but as a kid, when you get sick, right, what, what, what was the way that your mom initially checked your temperature? I, know my, I love seeing my wife do it. She'll take her cheek, you know, the precious soft cheek of hers, and she'll put it up against the forehead of my daughter's. And if it's warm, then she goes and gets the thermometer, right? But most of the time, it's not at, you're okay. You know, go, go, go along. I don't know what it is about a mom's cheek or hand. It's like, it's got superpowers in it. But like, if, you're, if you go to the doctor, it's another way, right? I'm amazed. You know, it used to be you stick the thermometer under your tongue, right? Now they stick a little thing in your ear or you've got, you know, we've got the thing at the house where you just swipe across your forehead and I'm sure there's tons of other ways. Now you could take a thermometer and you could like stick it in between your toes and maybe get some kind of reading. I know it's, it's gross you out. It, it, some kind of reading, uh, some kind of temperature. You could take it and just kind of put it on your skin. You get some kind of temperature there. But if you want an accurate reading of what your temperature is, there's only certain places that, that you check it, right? If you want an accurate reading of your Christian faith, there's only certain places that you need to look. How's your family life? Are your kids hearing about and feeling the weight of the gospel in your life? How's your, how's your work life? Are your coworkers seeing Christ in you? How's your private life? Is what you're looking at in accordance with the beauty of Christ? Or is it how the world would define happiness? Don't worry about looking at all these other places. You look at those three places and tell me what you see. And then I'll tell you whether or not you really know Jesus. It's that simple. And for us today, we've got to continue to ask that question. Are we going to continue to be the church that holds on to these kind of things? Are we going to be the kind of church that tries to be something that it's not? You see, Paul wanted to help Titus understand something about Christianity, and that's that miraculous power comes through mundane faithfulness. Miraculous power comes through mundane faithfulness. So it's not about what you're going to do tomorrow for the Lord. It's about what you're going to do with these truths right now. Let, let tomorrow worry about itself. What are you going to do right now? How are you going to respond right now? Because there might not be a tomorrow, right? There might not be a this afternoon. And so what's God calling you to do right now? That's the most important thing for you to do. And that's what I would challenge you to do during this time of invitation. Let's pray together.